And we'll read from verse number 23. Acts 4, verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. That's our reading. We are always looking to the Lord to help and to bless his word as we read it together. So chapter 4, obviously one flowing section of narrative, and we're breaking into it in our reading this evening, following on from what we read before. And you remember that in these early chapters of Acts, you've got the witness of the apostles, and you've got growing opposition to that witness in this chapter. Prior to this, there didn't seem to be too much opposition. They were able to go up and down to the temple freely, able to preach, it would seem, and to worship, it would seem. But now, after the miracle that took place, there's opposition to that. And there was a challenge to their authority. You remember we were thinking about the whole issue of the name, whose name they were doing this in, and by whose authority they were doing these good things. And there is this whole idea of the challenge of the authority of the religious establishment. When you come to uh, this section, what has happened is that having been taken into custody, I suppose, before the court, or certainly before the authorities, and examined, and there being nothing evident that they could hold them or further the legal process with, they simply threatened them and then they let them go. We pick up the reading after that happened in verse number 23. And so you have this situation that these disciples, these apostles, have been through what you might think would be a fairly traumatic experience. I think nowadays with our kind of um, desire for the sensational and certainly publicity, that if you'd gone through something like this, many people might decide that the best thing to do is to tell everyone about it, is to kind of spread the news and exalt themselves or attract attention to themselves, make themselves bigger, better known, a kind of sensationalism, if you like, but it's the exact opposite. The thing that they do first that we read of in verse 23, after they've been let go, is it says they went to their own company. So you remember that there was the need for boldness in the face of trial in our previous message. Now we're thinking about fellowship in the midst of trials. And that's what they seek. That's what they want. And that's where they go. So the first place they go is to their own people. Now it doesn't say 
that they went to the other apostles. It was more than that. It was the other Christians in general. Their own company, or literally just their own. This word is used elsewhere in Acts in chapter 24 and verse 23, where it says that Felix commanded that none of Paul's friends, i.e. his own, should be prevented from attending to his needs once he was put into house arrest. It's the same word used in John chapter 1 and verse 11. The Lord Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. It simply means, um, apart from the context, it simply means friends or family or close associates or neighbours or so on. And in this context, it is the Christians. And they are considered by these disciples as their own people, their own company. It's the first place they go. It's the first place they think to go. It's the first place they want to go. Remembering they're coming out of what must have been a stressful situation. They're under a lot of pressure. They've been threatened with violence. And they're witnessing for Christ. You can imagine the adrenaline is running in them. And the first place they want to go is to their own company, is to their own people. She's the first challenge. If you go through a time of pressure or the opposite, if you go through a time where you've known something of success or some excitement or whatever, and you've been lifted up or you've been set down, one or the other, a kind of extreme circumstance, where do you want to go and among whom do you want to be? Where do you gravitate to? I'm interested that sometimes people who feel they're going through a hard time, stay away from their own people. Uh, and you ask, where are they? And they say, well, I've been through a tough time, so I'm staying at home. And the, the, the local church, the local assembly is gathering and they're absent. They're not gravitating to their people, they're actually distancing themselves from the people, which is the opposite of what happens here. This is what should happen. This is the example to follow that when we go through difficult times, we should gravitate to, we should want to, we should seek the company of fellow believers. And in particular, those that we gather with week by week. We shouldn't distance ourselves. We shouldn't absent ourselves. We shouldn't be a stranger in difficult times. That should draw us, it should draw us toward the local church, toward the local assembly, towards the, the Christians that we're in fellowship with and in relationship with. Let me just say this to you. It is a strange thing if that's not true. And the strangeness is with you principally. You say, well, you've no idea how strange the people are that I meet with. Meet by. Yeah, that's true. And you, you probably are more strange or equally strange because none of it, we all think we're all normal, but of course we're not. Um, we've all got oddities about ourselves. You're all smiling at me as if you may have, but I don't. <laughs> we all do. The truth of it is just this, that one of the, one of the uh, strengths of what God has designed in the New Testament, the local church, is that it's made up of a diversity of personality and character and background. And but there's this common theme, there's this common bond, and it's Christ. It's the presence of Christ. It's the elevation of Christ. It's the speaking and singing 
and it's the fellowship that's centered in Christ and it's the, the feature of us when we come together. You shouldn't want to be absent from that. You should be wanting to be present. It shouldn't be that which pushes you away. It should be that which draws you. And if not, the principal problem lies with yourself, not with other people. One, um, one Wearsbait, who I'm quoting a lot these days, says this, One main test of a Christian's character is where he finds fellowship and companionship. It says a lot of where we are in our spiritual life by who we're most comfortable with and where we want to be. If we want to be alone, that says something. If we want to be with non-Christians all the time, that says something. If we want to be with Christians that are not living as Christians ought to live, that says something. It is a test as to where we are personally, the company that we want to keep. Proverbs 13 verse 20 says this, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. You become like the people you spend time with, increasingly. And so I think it's interesting, it's a challenge to me, I hope it's a challenge to you, that when they were let go, they went to their own company. Or they could have done other things. They could just have gone to their bed. You came home and I need I need time out. I've had a very bad time. I need to spend a week in my house. I need some me time. No, they don't. Straight to their own company. And then they shared with them all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. They shared their experience. So that those who were absent, those who were not with them in their difficulty, could share with them in their experience. That's true fellowship. It's not living separate, um, isolated lives. It is sharing our lives, one with another. And this is what happened. And then notice in verse 23, if they sought fellowship in the midst of trials, then notice in verse 23 what happened when they were together. It says, and when they heard that, that is when they heard the report back of all that the chief priests and elders had been speaking, the fact that they'd been warned not to witness and they had been threatened if they did. When they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God unitedly with one accord and they start to pray. They start to pray. So you have fellowship in the midst of trials. Now you have prayer in the midst of trials. And again... Just think of what they could have been doing and what we would do after we've been through that. Uh, John Piper says this, It is remarkable that these Christians take five, five verses to tell God who he is and two verses to ask what they want from him. This is the emphasis in their prayer. Now, there was fear in Jerusalem. Of course, there was. It's barely two months since the crucifixion. And realistically, if you put yourself in that situation, so two months from the crucifixion, the disciples from the authority are now under scrutiny. This event up at the temples brought the authorities that put the Lord Jesus to death. They are now focused on these disciples and they may have thought this, you know what, let's let the thing die down a bit. Let's let the heat go out of this situation. Perhaps it's time to go home. Perhaps it's time to go back to Galilee. Perhaps we need to let things settle down. Let the fuss die down. Now's not the time. 
Let's just pray for peace, protection, and let's pray for the, the hassle to stop. Well, let's find out what they did pray. Notice how it begins in verse 24. It begins halfway down the verse with this. Lord, thou art God. If you're looking at the ESV, it will just say sovereign Lord. This is um, an unusual word for Lord in the original. It's not the common word for Lord that's used here. In fact, it's used only, I think, one other time. It's the word that we get despot from in Greek, which might not help some of you. But that's the word that you basically get someone who has the idea of absolute rule. So you would say, for example, uh, Putin is a despot. He has absolute, it would seem, rule and authority. It is the idea in the context of the Bible, it was used of a master. So, for example, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 29 the same word is used by Simeon, Lord, let us now thy servant depart in peace. Lord, let your servant, or you are letting your servant depart in peace. So it's interesting their choice of word. They've just been before authority that is supreme in Jerusalem. That there's the power of life and death, it would seem. And they come before that authority and they stand there boldly and they resist it. And they stand there and they will not be cowed and they will not accept the threats and modify their behaviour. They leave their stand before that authority. They go to where the Christians are and they speak to someone, God, who they consider to have more greater authority than that which they've left. And they use this word to that end. Master, this is the one that they truly serve. Not these earthly authorities. This is the one that they will submit to. This is their sovereign Lord. This is the one whose authority is global, universal actually. They don't come before him and say, Father, this is a different emphasis. They're coming before the one who's all authoritative and they use that word. One writer said they recognised God had complete ownership of them. And that he had every right to use them in any way he pleased. They committed themselves completely to the Lord. So they've come out of this difficult, pressured situation. They accept it. They don't reject it. They don't resist it. And they just speak to God and they say, you're sovereign. You're our master. And then they say this. Thou art God which hast made heaven and earth, and the sea, and all that in them is. So now they describe him as creator. So he's the master, and they're the servants. That's the relationship context. And the one who's master of them is actually creator of all things. He's over all, because he made all, is the idea. And not only did he create the heaven and the earth and the sea, he also created everything in them. Which means this, that as they're speaking to their master, they're also speaking to the creator of those who had authority in Jerusalem that were, causing, that were seeking to terrify them. Revelation 14 verse 7 says this, Fear God 
and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who hath made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This is the two ideas brought together in that verse. You've got the authority of God and you've got the creative glory of God. Their master is greater than the masters of this world. So if you pick this up and bring it together, what's happening is this. They are released. They seek fellowship from other saints they join in prayer together and they worship their master and remind themselves he's the creator. Then they turn to the scriptures in their prayer. They've, they've yet to mention their own circumstance. They've yet to ask for anything. They turn to the scriptures in their prayer and then notice what we learn that they knew in verse 25. They say this, who, that's God, that's their master, that's the creator, who, by the mouth of thy servant David, has said. The best kind of prayers are the prayers that are infused with scripture, biblically based, reflecting what the Bible says, quoting what the Bible says, and understanding of what the Bible says. And that only comes as we gain that ourselves and are able to bring that out in our prayers. And they did that. And they understand this, that God is basically weaving his will and his ways according to that supreme authority that he has. Everything that's happening, the fact that the crucifixions take place, the fact that this has happened up at the temple, the fact that they've been brought before these authorities and threatened, they understand this. This is all part of God's plan and purpose. And their involvement is also part of God's plan and purpose. They're acknowledging that. And they're not just acknowledging it. They're understanding that this is what the scripture said would happen. It's consistent with God's revealed will in his word. And they also understand something of inspiration. So notice verse 25. They say this. Who by the mouth of thy servant has said. So here is the human and the divine element of inspiration in the whole of the Bible. This is how it happens. So we're here told, we otherwise wouldn't know, but here we're told that Psalm 2, which is what's quoted, was written by David, but actually it was God that was speaking. So David is the servant who writes it, but he's inspired by God, and it's therefore God's word. You have this, God by the mouth of thy servant David has said. So when you read Psalm 2, you are reading what God has to say that's written by God's servant David. When you come to the Bible, that's what it is. That's why we call it the word of God. It's what God has to say and he uses men to write these scriptures, but it's the word of God. And how relevant it is. They understand this. I don't know if it rang a bell. I don't know if there were some sitting there who'd been reading Psalm 2 lately, but they understood this. Do you know what? This is exactly the sort of thing that Psalm 2 spoke about. So in their prayer, they quoted it back to God. Why did the heathen rage? And the people imagine vain things. Verse 25. This is Psalm 2. They're quoting. The kings of the earth stood up. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Christ. Now they're quoting scriptures that are speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ that foretold that when Christ came and ultimately will be fulfilled in a coming day 
in a millennial context that there will be great opposition to the Messiah, to the Christ, to the Lord's anointed. Now this was written 900 years before this took place. And although they did not know it, although their enemies did not know it, even the enemies of God were under God's control. And King David's writing this. And he predicts a time when kings and rulers will join against the Lord and his anointed. Now the historical context may well be opposition to David's ascension to the throne in Israel, historically, 900 years before. But they will be fulfilled completely in a day yet to come. Revelation 17 verse 14 speak about the fulfilment of this in the future kingdom reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of that millennial thousand year reign, then the peoples of earth will gather themselves together against the Lord and his anointed again. And there'll be Armageddon will take place, the ultimate destruction of human rebellion against God. These shall make war with the Lamb, Revelation 17 verse 14. And the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords, King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful and so on. So the disciples understand, this is a messianic psalm. Speaks of the Messiah, speaks of Christ. And then in verse 27, they understand that this has an echo, at least a partial fulfilment in what's already taken place that they've witnessed. So they quote this to the Lord. This is still in a prayer. For of a truth, against thy holy child Jesus. Notice what they say. Whom thou hast anointed, the Lord's anointed. Then they quote this. Herod, Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together. So they're taking Psalm 2, and they're saying what happened at the cross fits into what Psalm 2 says. So the heathen, that's the Gentiles, that's the Romans. The people, that's the people of Israel. The kings of the earth, Herod. The rulers, Pilate. They say it all fits. And so they've been reading the Bible. They, they see that the circumstances they've experienced, both in terms of the cross and the, the, the ongoing opposition, fit perfectly into what Psalm 2 says. And then they say this. <coughs> they were all gathered together, verse 28, to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Predestined to be done. You ever heard the word predestination? Don't panic. It's a big word. It's not a difficult concept. You actually see it here. Let me try and explain it. So they're saying this. Everything that happened at the cross wasn't an accident. It was prophesied years before. We recognise that. This is what they're saying in prayer. We recognise that they were the heathen, the people, the kings of the earth, the rulers were all gathered together. But we also recognise this, that they were actually working out divine purpose, God's purpose, even though they didn't know it. That's an amazing thing. Pontius Pilate's going to sell the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. I don't know what was in his mind. We know that Satan actually 
Satan took personal control of Pontius Pilate. He entered into him personally, which is an unusual thing. Such, I think, was the importance of what he was going to do to Satan. He wouldn't delegate this to a demon. He took control of himself. And Judas goes and he betrays the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. I don't know if he knew that he was fulfilling Old Testament scripture. And years and years before, King David had experienced a similar type of betrayal by a man called, see if I can say it, Ahithophel, who had betrayed David. And it's written in the Old Testament. And David's familiar friend had lifted up his heel against him. And that was prophesying actually what would take place in the life of the Lord Jesus. David trusted Ahithophel. The Lord never trusted Judas. He knew he was a thief from the beginning. But that scripture is applied to the circumstances of Judas. And the point is just this, that even the harshest enemies of God and the gospel work out God's purposes unknown to themselves. God is sovereign over all these things. They're recognising this. They're recognising actually that the things that they were doing had been determined before these people were even born. Before they knew anything about it. The idea is this. Determined before. That expression. God determined before. Uh, it comes from the Greek word that we get the word horizon from. And this expression could literally be translated pre-horizon, which doesn't make any sense. But the idea was this, uh, the horizon marked the ultimate boundary on earth between sky and land. It's the ultimate boundary that separates the sky from the land. And that came to mean boundaries, boundaries. And the idea is this, that God determined the boundaries of people's lives before they were even born. And the people live within these bounds. They can't break out of them. It's a difficult concept for us. One writer says this, it reminds us that God is the supreme historian who actually wrote all history before it ever began. And therefore it's not surprising that the word that is used here of God is only ever used of God in the New Testament. It's never used of people. This is not something that we have or we can do. This is something for God alone. It is a divine action and attribute. God is in control. God knows all about it. What's happening to them is part and parcel of God's great plan. Now that ought to be, as it was for them, a comfort for us in life. Sometimes we think our lives get a bit chaotic, a bit out of control. They may seem that way, they may feel that way, they may look that way, but they're not that way. God's plan and purpose will be accomplished in his time, in his way. It's a mercy we don't have, if you like, a kind of trailer of it. You know, if they're going to release things, you know, um, you get trailers of them and you get snapshots of, of the kind of highlights. It's just as well we don't get a snapshot of what our life's going to be like. 
You see, God knows. God has a will. God has a purpose. God has a plan. You see that even in the biggest sense in the Bible. Genesis to Revelation has already been written, yet it hasn't been worked out in time yet. The history hasn't taken place, but it's already been written. We know how it ends. We know who wins. We know how he wins. We know when he wins. And all God's purposes, God is, even on earth, in our lives, building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the church will be complete in that coming day. It won't be incomplete or less than God determined it to be. It will be complete. We cannot undermine or minimise God's sovereign working and purposes in the big scale, but also in our own lives. And so these are things that you can reflect upon in your life and you can see God's purpose being worked out. You can see God's will being done very hard in the moment to say all this and that and the other, very hard in the moment. But as you reflect upon it, you can determine it. Why this happened and that happened and how God directed you this way and that way. And that's what they're acknowledging. Now, there is a mystery to it. I'm going to stand up here and say that it's not something that's difficult to understand. Never mind explain. There's a mystery associated with the balance and tension between God predetermining, determined before that certain things will happen, and our responsibility for decision-making, which we cannot abdicate. There's a balance, a tension, yes, but a balance between... We both... We see them both in some verses in the Bible. For example, Acts 2 verse 23, about the Lord Jesus, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. (coughs) Peter says, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. There it is in relation to the cross. Peter's saying this, he was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God knew beforehand, God determined beforehand that this would happen in the way it did, but they were accountable and responsible for actually doing it. It was them that took, and it was their wicked hands that crucified and slew the Lord Jesus. There is, to the human logical mind, the irreconcilable tension, yet God reveals it, And both are true and equally true and they sit in tandem together. God is supremely sovereign and we are responsible for our actions and response to God and his word here upon earth. And eternity will determine how that works out. What had happened to them was consistent with what had happened to their Lord in recent times and was consistent with the prophetic scriptures. They're in a prayer meeting, and this is the content of their prayer. So, you know, their prayers were not all taken up with, as we so often humorously reflect upon, you know, someone's ingrown toenail type of thing, causing them grief, and can't get their own Zoom for 10 weeks because they've got a cold or something, and all this sort of thing. This is not what you have in this prayer meeting. When people have problems and challenges in their life, the people of God should gather to pray for them, whether they are physical, spiritual, economic, 
problems within the assembly, problems within family circles and so on. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely correct. But let us remember this. These prayers are not shopping lists. We come before a sovereign God. We're seeking to understand his mind and will and purpose and we're looking to understand our circumstances in light of what he's revealed. Five verses about God, two about them. It's interesting, isn't it? We would maybe have half a verse about God in the introduction and then six about ourselves. Realistically. When you come to the prayers of the Bible, it's often not like that. And now they say this in verse 29. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. So there is petitioning of their sovereign Lord on the basis of what they have understood and expressed in prayer. So they say this, and now, Lord, behold their threatenings. So they're asking God to do certain things. Number one, to look upon them in their present circumstances. To pay attention to what's being done to them. So they're asking God to take note of them. Notice they do not ask for the persecution to stop or to change or to get easier. They affirm the truth that God sees them and God knows everything about them. L-O-I. The God who sees, Exodus 2.25, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Another translation puts it this way. So God looked in the Israelites and was concerned about them. The, the, the fact that they bring their circumstances before the gaze of God means this. They're bringing their circumstances under the sympathetic, caring, loving, compassionate gaze of their almighty God. The God who cares for them more than they care for each other. And they ask God to take note of them, to consider them, not to consider them in a harsh kind of accounting, auditorial sort of way, but rather to consider them in keeping with the compassionate, loving character that God has. They're his children. He is the father. They're the servants. He's the master. And they want to be seen by him. I love that idea. I was thinking of that today as I was preparing this. I love the idea of, in prayer, bringing our circumstances under the gaze of God. With an appreciation of who he is, an appreciation of what happens when God sees things. And so they pray for this. And they pray specifically for this very thing. Behold their threatenings. Lord, look at what they're doing to us. Look upon them. See them. When you are in times of, of pressure, this is a kind of basic, yet I think, appropriate way to bring yourself before God is to put yourself there and ask God to see you. See you as you are. See you what you're going through. See you what you're experiencing. See your trials, your temptations, your struggles. Lord, look at me. Look at the circumstances. Gaze upon them. Lord, behold their threatenings. Then they petition him. 
and grant unto thy servants peace, protection, neither of these things. That with all boldness that they may speak thy words the opposite. It's quite remarkable. It's not what I would have prayed. I would have prayed for protection. Probably still would pray for protection. If you'd just been hauled up in front of the authorities and you were in danger of getting a beating, they're praying for boldness to speak and not be afraid, knowing that that will be the outcome of their boldness. And so they, they ask for boldness. They ask, one writer says, for power, not protection. He's the master, they're the servants. He's the setter of boundaries in the lives of men and the course of history. Nothing happens without his authority and out of his purpose and control. And so they pray for boldness to accomplish his service within that. Very different from how I think. Maybe from how you think as well. But it's interesting, it's challenging. And then they also ask God to do what God alone can do. To do his work in the circumstances. They're praying for boldness to do their work, what they've been tasked to do. Remember, these are the witnesses, these are the apostles. They've been tasked by God to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus, to be these official testimonies to his resurrection. So they're asking for boldness to do what God asked them to do. Their service for the Lord. That's not all our service for the Lord. We're not all apostles. In fact, none of us are apostles. Uh, and we're not all going to be standing in front of authorities and this sort of thing. But we all serve the Lord within their own circumstances. And the way that God has asked us to serve and the boundaries that he's set as the life circumstances we have, they're praying for power, for boldness to do what God wants them to do. And now they ask for God to do what he's able to do. Which is different from them. So verse 30. By stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Now why do I say they're asking for God to do what he promised to do? Remember this, that in these early days, God had promised... And it was evident that it was being fulfilled that there were signs and wonders that apostles could do that would authenticate the message they were bringing. The signs of an apostle, the Bible speaks of. And they're asking God to do what he promised to do through them. The promised authentication of the apostolic witness that they would make. This is God's part of their service. We're not apostles, but bring the application. God has, if you belong to him, if you're a Christian, if you're saved, it means that you're a servant of God. Which means that you serve him. And that will be different, I think, for all of us. Whatever that is. Could be in the home, could be in your workplace, could be in your family circle, could be in your community. Whatever it is, and whatever it is. But nonetheless, we all serve the Lord. He's the master, we're the servants. They are praying for boldness to do what God's given them to do. And they're praying that God would do what he alone can do. So, for example... 
If you're witnessing to someone in your workplace, just as an example, you can't save that person. You can't even get anywhere near saving that person. But your job's not to save that person. That's not your service for the Lord. That's out with your and my ability and service. We're not asked to do that. We're not able to do it. So we shouldn't even think about doing it. Can't save anyone. But we're asked to witness in whatever way we're able to do. That's our role. So we pray for boldness to witness. And then we pray for God to do what he alone can do. Connected to our service. It's God that saves. It's God that speaks through his word. It's God that troubles the conscience. It's God that enlightens. It's God that saves. It's God that works. You think about other service that you might do. You think about kindness you might show. An example you might set. You think about a kindness that you're going to show to a friend. A friend's getting difficulty of one sort or another. You're going to draw alongside that friend. You're going to help them. Now that may involve listening. It may involve speaking. It may involve whatever. But nonetheless, you're going to help your friend. But the full impact of that service on them spiritually, which is the main idea of any service of the Lord, the the ultimate, the benefit spiritually is not going to come from the help you offer. You're asking the Lord to come in and to work in that person's life. Think about all the service we do for the Lord in our lives. We need to ask God to do what he alone can do. And then notice this. <clears throat> Lo and behold, something happened. Surprise, surprise. <clears throat> it would be a surprise, actually, if you think about it. How often would we be surprised if in our prayer meeting, God moved and worked. Notice what happened when they had prayed. The place was shaken where they were assembled together. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spake the word of God with boldness. The idea of shaking in the Bible is one of the um, evidences of God's presence. And this rocking or tottering, how you you may uh, see it, um, happened in... Exodus 19 of the giving of the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai, there was this shaking. Um, you see it in Isaiah 6, um, the, the vision that Isaiah, you remember Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and basically the foundation shook at the voice of him who called the house filled with smoke, and so on. You've got this idea of shaking. God will shake the earth in a coming day. And it would appear that when they had prayed, God's presence was known amongst them in a peculiar way, in a, in a particular way. And then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. You say, well, that could never happen here. That ought to happen here. Because it's a command in the epistles when Paul writes to the Christians in Ephesus, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Now, to be controlled, which is the idea of being filled, rather than being filled up like a, like a glass, 
The idea of being filled is to be controlled. And if you're going to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, it means you need to yield control to him. And it also means you can't be controlled by something else. So you need to make space and room for him. He's already within us as Christians. He dwells within us. He's resident in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is within us. But I would say he's got control of very few of us, if any of us, as he would like. But to be filled with the Spirit is something that is not beyond the experience of any of us. It ought to be part and parcel of being a Christian, to be controlled by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God took control of them. And they speak the word of God with boldness. So God is now working, and they are witnessing. (coughs) And that's what happened right throughout the book of Acts. So in Acts chapter 9, verse 27, Barnabas is vouching for Paul and his conversion. And he points out how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Acts 13 and verse 46, Paul and Barnabas, they spoke out boldly. Acts 14 and verse 3, so they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. Acts 19 verse 8, Acts 26 verse 26, Acts 28 verse 31, boldness characterised testimony right through the book of Acts. Let's draw this to a conclusion then. This is some prayer meeting. But then these are some circumstances. When you go to areas of the world where there is um, obvious and uh, strong persecution that's all around the Christians, these are the sorts of prayer meetings you sit in. Up in Nepal at the moment, there are problems with anti-conversion laws, which means that if you witness to someone and they convert from one religion, as it's seen by law, to Christianity, then you've committed a crime. And so it's a criminal offence to effectively witness for the Lord. It's not too dissimilar from these circumstances. Their prayer meetings are a bit different from ours. We don't invite persecution. We don't want persecution. We're not masochists. We would prefer to live peaceably. The Bible speaks about it. We would prefer to be able to serve and to witness without any opposition at all. But let's not kid ourselves on. The sort of experience that they had comes within a particular context. We actually in our country don't live in that context of physical, close, threatened threatened persecution. But we can learn from them. We can learn from them in our own prayer lives and in our corporate prayer lives. We can learn to be drawn to the people of God, not run away from them, not find the slightest excuse to be absent. I don't know, The fact that you're here on a Friday night means I'm kind of speaking to folk and taking the time on a Friday night, the freezing cold, to come along and to meet. So that says something to me. But let's challenge yourself with the week-to-week things. Do we run away or find the slightest excuse to be absent from the gatherings of the Lord's people rather than be attracted towards them as they did? 
Let us seek fellowship, not shun it. Let us pray, acknowledging something of the Word of God. Learn the Word of God. Read the Word of God. Educate yourself. Be educated in what the Bible says about the Lord. Let us learn about him so that we are more intelligent, more understanding of the one that we speak to, his character, the way he conducts himself, the truth that he's revealed to us about himself. Let's get to know him. So that when we're speaking to him, we're speaking appropriately in accord with what the Bible says about God. And let it be consistent. Let us understand this, that when we come to pray, (coughs) let us pray for help to serve him. And pray for God to work with us, alongside us. Then maybe what we see here might metaphorically happen in our lives. Maybe we'll get shaken up a wee bit. There's nothing wrong with getting shaken up a wee bit. And filled with the Spirit of God. And be a bit bolder in our service for the Lord. Which, by the way, isn't always about witnessing. Serving the Lord is a big, big thing. Covers the whole of our lives. I like this. It's a bit crude, but I liked it. Um, I can't remember where I got it from. It's just a note at the end of my notes. But I read this online about this passage. Someone summed it up in this way. I will not give up, shut up, or let up. And that's the kind of summary of these disciples in Acts chapter 4. I won't give up, let up, or shut up. Let's just pray. Father, we just bow in thy presence again. We thank thee for the example that so often is different from our own examples. Yet we pray that we might learn from them. Help us to get to know our God and to be able to speak appropriately in prayer to thee and to seek thy face. We pray for help to serve. We pray for boldness to serve. We pray, our Father, that we would be delivered from persecution in this land. We don't want it. But if it comes, our Father, we pray that we may learn now how we ought to be in those times. Father, we thank thee for everyone, as we've said, who's taken the time, made the effort to come here um, on a Friday evening. And Father, we just pray thy blessing upon everyone. We ask thee, Father, that as we share food together in conversation, there is bless us. We give thanks for the food and return thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.